If you've struggled with stress, balance, or burnout, and simply feel discouraged or even defeated, and if you're ready to move from force to flow and enjoy ultimate Zen success in your career, health, or relationships, then the Zen Success Show is for you. Your host, Carissa Sims, is an entrepreneur, corporate consultant, best-selling author, meditation teacher, and healer who has found her own Zen success. Here's your host, Carissa Sims. Welcome to this week's episode of Zen Success. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brayden Anderson. I'm saying your name right? Yeah, you are. Okay. Okay, great. Top lawyer and entrepreneur, Brayden Anderson, leads the movement, hashtag Black Resilience. The name of his new book is also called Black Resilience, the blueprint for Black triumph in the face of racism. He made headlines in 2020 as the first Division I college basketball player who is also a law student going on to be hired by the Obama firm. What an accomplishment. And it wasn't that long ago. Only in 2020. Welcome, Braden. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. It's good to be here. That's awesome. And in the middle of COVID, how was that? I mean, you made headlines as the first division one college basketball player. Was that like after COVID was happening or before? Yeah. So, so kind of the the sequence of of operations there was, so I I played basketball in, in college for Fresno state. Um, was highly touted, was a member of the Canadian men's uh, national team, um, what would have been the Olympic team, but we failed to qualify, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, was highly touted, supposed to go to the NBA, right, like so many are told, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately suffered a very, very serious injury. Uh, I actually broke my neck in a car accident. Uh, <gasps> literally a month before my first full season was was set to begin um wow that is insane because you think as an athlete you know you think your injury would be on the court not in a car accident right it just goes to show that like you never know what's going to happen right and for a lot yeah. of athletes that are highly touted that have all these opportunities right it might be that things just don't pan out on the court. It might be that you hurt your knee while playing. It might mm-hmm. be that you get in a you know, horrific car accident, right? And yeah. So I, um, but I can I up, ask you a question? Yeah. Are you lucky to be alive? Yes. So I actually had a 0.06% chance of making oh. a full As per, so Gene Carragy, I was fortunate enough to have like one of the top neuro, uh, um, orthopedic surgeons in the world um, out at Stanford, and he did Peyton Manning's neck surgery when when Peyton Manning had had an issue with with his, um, you know, he had a spinal fusion, and so mm. um, he was like, "Listen, like you, like the chances of you making a full recovery here are slim, um, but you know, I'm going to do the best that that I can." And right, and it's a tough thing to hear, uh, especially when you're thinking about your athletic career and becoming a pro and going to the NBA, right? Um, you start thinking about, wow, I just, I hope I, I hope I live. And if I live, I hope I can walk, right? And and you just kind of take it step by step. 
Um, mm-hmm. That kind of started my journey about thinking about my life a little bit differently and mm. thinking. Um, and I, I had done that previously because I, you know, went through adversity and, and overcame some some pretty daunting obstacles in the past. Right. Mm-hmm. So my mindset was able to pretty quickly shift from woe is me. Why is this happening to me? This is terrible. I didn't do anything wrong. I, like we're hit by a drunk driver, right? Like I didn't do anything wrong to be in this situation, but yet I'm in this terrible circumstance where mm-hmm. my future is now hanging in the balance. And I approached that issue by by thinking about not how can I lose less? Because I think a lot of people, when something mm-hmm. bad happens, you start thinking about mitigation. You start thinking about, well, how can I make this suck a little bit less? And mm. what instead of like the opposite mm-hmm. how can i win like right like how can mm-hmm. i actually turn this negative and it sounds like almost cliche before you dive into it and actually figure out what that means but how can i actually turn this setback into a win not a lose less but actually a win and in my current circumstance there was only really one way to do it like there wasn't three or five there's really only one way after really kind of taking inventory of what my options were, what the variables were that I could actually control in that situation. Um, And it was essentially because I had suffered this injury, I qualified for a medical red shirt, right? Which gave me some extra year, you know, an extra year of eligibility. And so if I graduated early, I could utilize the graduate transfer rule. And potentially, if I'm lucky, right? If I am able to make a full recovery and play again, I could get more school paid for than anybody else. And so my new goal, right before it was MBA, that became pretty unlikely at that time, right? But my new goal became, I want to be the highest paid college basketball player of all time. And the way to do that was, you know, you had to make history in a couple different ways. Like I had to graduate, I had to do three years of school in, in a year and a half right um i maxed out credits i wrote letters to the president of the university saying hey i have this crazy idea uh i want to be the first person to play basketball while in law school right uh and that was my way of again if your goal is to become the highest paid college basketball player of all time you're not getting paid in money it's education so how do you get the most valuable education that you possibly can right hundred thousand dollar a year legal education was that answer for me and so that just became my mission um from that point forward and um you know obviously there was an entire journey that led to that but yeah um, that's fascinating that that you had like such a specific goal because before that like you said you were on track for the nba and like that was it everybody just like that was what your path was right yeah, you, you have to be able to pivot. And I think that's really, really difficult, especially for really driven people, because having a plan B detracts from plan A, right? And I think what you have to be able to do is big picture understand that there are only certain things that I can control as a human being, right? Um, but I can control quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. I can influence quite a few variables and I may not be able to predict or control the outcome for each of them. But if I have a really good sense of all the things I can influence, 
you can send yourself in a general direction, right? And so if your goal is to be successful, right, no matter what, and to leverage every opportunity that comes before you to the furthest and greatest extent possible, right, that is a really good goal. And basketball for me, for many years, was my greatest asset that I had. It was the greatest opportunity that I had, right? I wouldn't have had the opportunity to go to college, for example, but for my athletic and basketball ability, right? And so ironically, like now I'm an attorney at the largest law firm in the world, but I wouldn't be here without basketball. And I think a lot of athletes, especially, right, don't think about their athletic ability as this vehicle that really could take them way beyond sports, right? And I think that that's a lesson that a lot of people in life can think about. It doesn't have to be athletics. It's it's anything that you, any opportunity that you have. And it may not even be the be all end all. It may not be where you want to end up, but can this opportunity, even if it's not perfect, can it get you to the next step, right? Can you put together a plan that gets you from point A to B, right? And you can continue to grow and follow the path to becoming the person that you want to be. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and I think that possibly could happen to athletes if they get an injury or if they're already getting paid, if they're professional, because I was listening to a football player talking about uh, brain injury and how it, it like led him to retiring, but he, now he's doing all this amazing research with kids and creating products. And so, so you're right. It's like sometimes something that happens to you could be your greatest gift or send you in a direction that you never thought possible. So I was wondering if you believe that you're the creator of your life. You know, I, I think ultimately, right, there there are there is a, a function of environment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like there are a lot of things that just happened to me, right? Like I was born, my mom had me when she was 18 years old. My my dad left me. She 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 married somebody who was unfortunately abusive. That led to me going through a great deal of physical and emotional abuse as a child, led to me being homeless for periods of time. Those were a lot of things that I couldn't really control. I'm a child. I'm born in this circumstance. It's really difficult. Mm. It's trauma, right? But the way that you choose to respond, right? The way that you choose to react to mm. your environment is ultimately, in my personal opinion, a hundred times more important than what actually happens to you. Mm. In that That's sense, beautiful largely the creator, right, of mm -hmm. my own life and my own circumstance, because so much of what a conclusion is, is predicated on how I actually respond, right? Because if the story was like, for example, it would be very normal, right, Carissa, for someone who's dealt with childhood abuse, born into a broken home, was homeless, right, has dealt with all those different things, It'd be very easy to just cut the story out there and say, and unfortunately, Braden had a really hard life. And, you know, he he turned to drugs and alcohol to cope with that stress and trauma. And, you know, it just it's unfortunate. And and that's why that happened to him. Right. Or you could say, actually, he was really resilient. He was able to actually overcome that somehow. But then 
he broke his neck in a car accident. Even though he had worked so hard, even though he overcame so much, he broke his neck in, his, in a car accident. And that just kind of derailed his life and things just really didn't work out. Right? You can have an excuse that is justified, right? That makes sense that nobody... <laughs> Everybody would, yeah, under everybody would understand. Yeah. Right. And then that's that it's so easy to make that argument for each of those different things. And this happens all the time to all of us, right? Where something bad happens. Like I think some pretty outrageously bad things have happened to me, right? But we all deal with our own massive problem, right? That is a huge deal to us. And it doesn't have to necessarily be homeless, hopelessness. It could be that you are getting out of a really, really difficult relationship, an abusive relationship that really, really hurt you and, and caused you a great deal of trauma. And you're having a hard time kind of escaping and moving on from that, right? Um, and that nobody would judge you for, you know, mm. having time. But the question becomes, okay, what's the next step in my healing process? How do I take control? Because doing anything less, you're going to fall victim to learn helplessness. And I think that's something that isn't talked about enough. Learned helplessness, I think, is, is a critical component that you have to be aware of when you think about overcoming adversity and being resilient, right? Because mm. if you don't believe in your heart that you have the ability to impact, influence, you know, be the creator of your own life, um, you, you're never really going to have the confidence or the wherewithal to do what it takes to be successful and be happy. Mm, yeah, that's profound. Do you think that you were like this as a child or do you feel like you evolved, you know, with, with like the trauma and like your experience and being homeless? Like what, what were you like? Like, what were some of the things like your mom would say to you? Because I mean, yeah. you are not only resilient, but you have this way of thinking. I mean, it's like, it's amazing that you're a lawyer, but like you're a genius, but you also think about things systematically. So yeah. What was that? What were you like? It was certainly a, a growth uh, process for me. Right. I think if, if you were to talk to many folks from my past, from my childhood teachers, right. Uh -huh. Okay. I'm, we're going to talk after this interview. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm a progression of all the people that you influence. No, I'm just kidding. It, they'll be surprised, right? Yeah. Like, okay. um, but that's why it's so important that you continue to grow in the right direction. I personally, I do think a lot about the sequence of things that happened to me, right? I think if I had, if I'd had a really easy life, right, up until the point of, say, breaking my neck, right? Um, that would have been really, really devastating, right? If I didn't have the muscle, right? You, the, the kind of muscle memory there in my brain to say, we've been through trauma, we've been through setbacks, we've been through devastating things, right? Let's, let's put it into gear. Let's do what we do, right? Um, I think that was kind of an evolution for me. And I think a lot about like, what if certain things had happened out of order, right? It's, it's almost like a diamond, right? And the pressure, that pressure, if it starts out consistent, and it's keeps getting greater and greater and greater and greater in increments that that are, are similar, right, you're gonna end up with something that's very hardened, that's very capable of dealing with stress. Um, 
Whereas if you try to just go full force, all the pressure in the world right off the bat, you might end up with dust, right? Um, and so I do think that the sequence of things in the way that they happened for me was very significant. But like, if I'm gonna kind of think of out external factors that had a big impact in, in my growth, you do have to have some some positive people in, in your life, right? You do have to have some people who believe in you, who love you, who support you no matter what, even if they're not perfect. They don't have to be perfect people, right? Um, my mom, for example, not a perfect person. She dealt with abuse herself, right? And in the process, it was complicated. She's being abused. Her children are being abused, right? There's a lot of, you know, hindsight. Wow, I wish I did things differently. Wow, I wish I left that relationship earlier, right? Um, but she was a victim of circumstance too, right? And I think that helps. And that's kind like of- going back to what you're saying, maybe the learned helplessness or it's what she what she knew. It's the only pattern she knew. For sure, for sure. And I think it, it helped me to understand, Krista, that like people don't need to be perfect to love you, right? And that you can understand that, hey, like this person should have maybe done this. But because, and then having the empathy to go, oh, but like they didn't because they were feeling like this and, and they still, they love me though, right? And like my mom, I never had doubt whether she loved me and whether she really cared about me, right? Um, and, and that was a really important source of support for me. That no matter what crazy things were happening, it wasn't necessarily that my mom could stop it or change it or mm-hmm. influence what was going on. But she could be a cheerleader for me and say, wow, this is really hard. I'm just going to cry with you because I love you. And I, you know, <laughs> and it kind of empowered me to to be the, become the person who could handle it. Right. Because I had the love and support in that corner, even though she wasn't perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you know, there's similar situations with some coaches that I had. Right. And some mentors that popped up out of the blue here and there that, you know, they gave me some some sources of support and, you know, when I needed them. Right. And I kind of was able to harness that and and utilize the support that I needed to get where I needed to go without being completely reliant on that person taking control of my life. Right. And kind of like making my problems go away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I'm sure significant, too. You know, it's like all those people were important on your path to who you are now. So like growing up, um, why were you homeless? Did you feel safer on the streets than at home? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I dealt with some really unfortunate, uh, like home life situations. Um, my, my stepdad, um, you know, I, I think this happens often, not to the extreme extent that it happened to me but i think for some people especially if you, you're dealing with mental health issues right and you're having your own demons that you're that you're battling uh having a stepchild that's not your blood and kind of having to deal with that person especially if if they're a child who's a little bit more difficult than others right like it can be hard to deal with that and i think the situation with my stepdad was you know he was an un healthy mentally right person um who had been abused when he was a child right and that led to him abusing me right um and 
there wasn't the love there, right, that you would have as, you know, the you know, your biological yeah. child. But just the natural that I have this love for you, right? I mm-hmm. think he saw his role as only a disciplinarian. And because he didn't have healthy relationships with his own parents, wasn't able to kind of form those skills, right? And and those kind of understandings about relationships mm-hmm. and how that dynamic was supposed to be. Um, and so I did, you know, I ended up running away for the first time when I was like 12. Um, and, you know, I'd live, you know, on friends' couches. I'd, you know, live with different different families. I stayed with my cousin for about a year, right? And I just kind of bounced around. And, mm. um, and did it, you come home occasionally or no? Occasionally, I, I would try to come home when when my stepdad wasn't there, right? Okay. Um, you know, I have five little brothers and sisters um, and they're really, really important to me. And so I would try to come back when I could, when, when he wasn't around. Uh, you know, my mom would sometimes come out and visit me where I was. My mom would give me rides places, right? Because as a kid, you need a ride right, uh, to, to do stuff. And so my mom would pick me up and we would still very much communicate a lot. You know, we'd talk on the phone on a daily basis. Um, and she understood, it's like, she understood where you're coming from. And it's like, you have such a healthy attitude towards all of this, because I, I just want to say one thing about it. Like being yeah. a step parent is not an excuse because there's even parents that will abuse their kids. So it's, you know, obviously you have come to terms with that whole situation and you have a forgiving heart and it's helped you thrive now. But, um, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that. You're hundred percent right. There's no excuse for abuse. I mean, listen, I've, I've been through obviously a lot. I have three kids of my own, right. And we all get the chance to choose how we're going to respond to, to our trauma. That's right. That's right. You know, my, I I actually, it's, to be honest, it's been like the most healing experience ever being myself because make me cry. That's so sweet. I I get to like relive and like have those, those, those tender moments and like build those relationships, the, those father, son, father, daughter relationships that like, I didn't get the chance to see and experience. And you know, Bravo, I wrote, yay! <laughs> you're healing your whole past by by being who you are now with your kids yeah I, I actually wrote a journal when I was a kid and like would write down things it started early like when I was young really young like I started journaling when I was like seven or eight years old and I have those journals to this day and like in some of those journals I would say like I will never do X, Y, and Z. I will never hit my son, right? Like I will never do this. And um, and it's 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 been really really profound and uh, and important um, to to feel to to be in those ex- those those situations where you're really frustrated and your child's yeah. not listening to you and you're like, right. you know what? And, and, and like, it hits me every time, right? It's like, I can mm. get really mad right now. Yeah. But I remember, like, I'm, it's so close in my mind being the kid, right? Who yeah. is a little restless, who you put, you put yourself in their shoes right away. Yeah. Exactly. 
exactly. That's amazing. So like, as you were journaling as a child, did you have dreams? Were you always hopeful for more like a different life, like, like elevated life? Did you watch basketball players? Did you want to do that and and be professional? Like what was your light within, you know? I, I was struggling to find it for for a period of time um, because, you know, I grew up in Western Canada and they're really the the only form of success that I had seen, to be honest, was uh, like oil and gas. Uh, mm-hmm. type. That's really like those were the successful people that you saw. You what started. about hockey? Was ho- hockey uh, big there or no? Hockey is really big. I didn't personally know like a professional hockey player right or a family right you know of professional hockey players right that's not something that I saw like directly um but like all of my really successful you know the parents of of my friends right who were really successful were successful in oil and gas um and I think that that actually did have a big impact on me because a lot of my friends when I'd go over to their houses like it it, it was kind of like I, I kind of explained my childhood a lot as like the Great Gatsby situation. Oh, were they really really wealthy? Yeah, you you know that scene <laughs> where there's the little shack that he lives in beside the big mansion. Uh huh. Like that kind of felt like my life. I was I didn't have any money, but I was really close to it all the time. Right. Interesting. Like was, that and that's important to to think about that because that's your frequency and your resonance and being in that it, it did it made me crave it i'm not gonna lie to you it, yeah it, it's thrown in your face and it's not yeah. but like you go over to your buddy's house and he has an eight million dollar house and you know we were my family we were living in my grandparents garage for a period of time before i was homeless right like so this oh, it was, not, not much better honestly it was I think it was like better. when I when I left my home, that's when healing began for me. So when ah, I started, beautiful not having a stable home, a lot of people are like, wow, that's so sad. But actually, because my home was so unstable where I was at, <laughs> living on my friend's couches and kind of living in different places was actually super healing for me because yeah. I how normal families interacted. And I wasn't being hit or yelled yes. at or called names or told that I was never going to be a, you know, amount to anything. And those years kind of prepared me for, you know, I ended up leaving the country and moving away completely on my own um, when I was 15. Oh my so, gosh. And I I'm was sorry, like, I missed that. Can you say that again? Where'd you move to? So the first place that I moved, that's how I like left Canada. When I was 15, I, I was... I had an opportunity out of the blue to to go to this this basketball school, this prep school in North Carolina. Um, and it was not the greatest opportunity, but it was the only opportunity I had, right? And at the time, it felt like a great opportunity, right? Um, but hindsight, it wasn't like amazing. I, I, I think most people's parents wouldn't have let them go if they do... If they did like due diligence on the situation, it was a brand new school just started. Um, you know, it, it the the circumstances surrounding the housing and different things, right, were questionable. There was sixteen of us living in a three bedroom apartment. 
um, right? It, it was it was odd, right? We we were getting we got groceries once a week, and you know you have sixteen boys in an apartment. Like you can imagine what happened, right? Coach drops off groceries, and we just would fight for the stuff, right? Right? Like people would grab stuff, put it in their room, hide food under their mattress, right? Like it didn't last. That's insane. And then, <laughs> that is insane. <laughs> it'd all be gone in like 24 hours max. Yeah. And like, again, a lot of kids left. Like a lot of kids who went to that school with me at 15, they left because it was, they were like, they called their parents. They were like, this is crazy. This is, yeah. We're fighting for food. We're literally fist fighting <laughs> for food. I'm starving. Yeah. And I'm, we're sleeping three to a bed. I'm on the floor. Like it's, this is crazy. I'm coming home. But for me, again, because I had the process before that, that was totally unstable home, getting beat up every day, terrible, then living on people's couches, bouncing around. For me, this was still the best opportunity I had. And I was grateful to be there. I was grateful for the opportunity to fight for my food, to be hungry, to whatever, because I saw the silver lining. I saw that I could get to a next step after that. And the next step was get a scholarship because what I noticed was even though the living situations were terrible and we were really hungry, there was coaches in the gym. When I played games, when I played games, there was high level, you know, NCAA coaches showing up. in the gym. So I saw the opportunity. I was like, I don't care what happens. I hope all these kids leave. It's more opportunity for me. (laughs) Right. Right. Cause I'm going to make it. And You know, I was fortunate enough to make it one year, right? And after that year, I had opportunities to go to a better prep school that had proper dorms. And And food. (laughs) A better academic curriculum. And right. And so, you know, I I just have kind of done that throughout my life. Mm. Um, Kind of get to the next place, make the best out of wherever you're at, right? It Mm -hmm. may not be perfect. But what about this situation? Can you leverage? Can you harness? Can you exploit to get a little bit further than where you're at to qualify you for more opportunities, for better ones, perhaps? But I, I've made a vow that like I'm never going to walk away or quit anything unless I have something better, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to away from something, any opportunity, <laughs> until I've unlocked the next one. It's kind of like if you think about a video game, I'm going to complete mm-hmm. every level. I'm mm-hmm. not skipping levels. I'm not going to put in cheat codes. I'm going to complete this level and then I'll get to the next one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And and how was school for you? Did it come easy to you? So uh, there was a really um, momentous um, um, conversation that I had with uh, my uncle who I really looked up to who kind of, you know, who left the left Canada when, when, you know, after college to, to go to medical school and, you know, we hadn't talked a lot and he invited me down to, to visit him during my time when I was in North Carolina. And, you know, he was talking to me about school because, you know, I actually had, had not been, you know, the greatest student when, during my time in Canada, right. We can blame it on unstable home. We can blame it on whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Me. Yeah. I know you're a no excuses type of person. I already get that. (laughs) I wasn't excelling. Yeah. Plain plain and simple. 
And, you know, we were talking about it and I had been lectured about doing better in school probably a million times by my mom, right? And so at first I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's telling me I should do better in school. Just following it away in the same yada, yada, yada that I had heard a million times. And I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna ask this guy a question. Because for me, it was like, I was trying to find value in doing it. I was trying to find a reason to care. And so I was like, okay, this guy's a, he was a gastrointestinal surgeon, specialist, you know, really smart, smart guy, had worked really hard to get where he was at. And I was like, if he thinks I'm so smart and capable of doing well in school, like, let's see what he says to this. And I asked him, I was like, all right, like, do you think I could become a gastrointestinal surgeon? Right? Just like, you know, if I do really well, if, if I mm-hmm. start caring about school, if I start trying and giving it my all, because that's really what he's asking me to do, was give my best effort. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, if I give my best effort, could I do what you do? Could I become a gastrointestinal surgeon? Right. And his response completely changed my life and my outlook because I really trusted him. His response totally changed my, my whole life. He looked at me and he was like, of course you can. Right. Like in, in a way that was just, he was offended by the question. Of course you can. <laughs> yeah. Gastrointestinal surgeon. Yeah. Absolutely. Here's how you do it. Here's the prerequisites you need. Here's the, the degrees I would consider. Here's the grades that you, that you need to get. You can do it. Let's go. Let's put together a plan. And that situation, like his response, I was blown away. I was sitting there just kind of like flabbergasted because I thought for sure he was going to be like, well, Brayden, I don't know. Right. Because like I, this is I was a CD student at that time that we're having the conversation. Yeah. And for him to believe that I was going to turn it around at that point in, in 11th grade and somehow become a gastrointestinal surgeon was just like, it, it was absurd to me. But at the same time, I could tell that he was being genuine. And I yeah. trust his judgment. Yeah, and he was, believed in you so strongly. Like he saw your potential and your inner genius. Yeah, he did. And, and, and that was enough for me, right? And I was like, you know what? I will make you this promise. I will give it my all. I will from now on, from this moment forward, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to try my very, very hardest. And, you know, the next year it went from D's and C's to C's and B's. The next year it went from the C's and B's to B's and A's. And, you know, I've just, I've pretty much been at the B's and A's kind of, you know, I've never been, you know, you know, 4.5 right guy. Yeah. Um, you know, but, I, you know, I was able to become an A-B student. Um, and, you know, there's different ways, there's different um, aspects of intelligence. Um, I think the ability to perform well academically in the school setting uh, does show a form of intelligence. And you have to master academic in-school intelligence to a degree, right, um, if you have a goal of like going to college or yeah, being yeah. a gastrointestinal surgeon or yeah. Becoming yeah. a professional, right? Yeah. Like entrepreneurship's a totally different ball game, right? Yeah. But if you want to do that route, right, there are hoops to jump through and you have to master it to yeah. a degree. Um, and so it became kind of my mission to do what was necessary to, to do that. Obviously, I ended up becoming an attorney instead. But it didn't really matter, right? It was the idea that, oh, wow, this has unlocked all these different opportunities for me. Now I have options. Mm-hmm. And, 
um, and kind of the rest was was history at that point. Yeah, yeah, you really started to believe in yourself because someone else believed in you. That's that's great. So, what is learned helplessness to you? We we talked about it a little bit, and how can we overcome that? That's, yeah, that's a great question. Learn learned helplessness is a condition that's caused by recurring trauma, right? That essentially teaches a human being that no matter what they do, they are not going to be able to influence the result of, of what happens to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a lie, right? That you found. <laughs> it's, it's a lie at some point, okay. right? So often this starts as a child, right? Learned helplessness often starts very young. These kinds of ideas, these these mentalities, right, that the impact and and kind of burden our our thought of ourselves, they happen young, right? Because when we're young, when we're two, three, four, five years old, we are very dependent on the adults around us. We're very dependent on the people who are taking care of us to make sure that we're put in healthy situations, that we're not being harmed physically, emotionally, psychologically. And when you are constantly being hurt over and over, it feels very helpless, right? It's kind of where it gets the name from. It's this helpless feeling that you end up, because it happens so frequently for a long period of time, it becomes learned. And you start to learn that you are helpless, that really there's no point that bad things are going to happen, that things are not really going to work out, that I can't really control my environment, right? I'm just going to continuously be hurt from someone or something. Something's going to happen, right? And it makes it, it essentially it's a it's a big confidence killer um folks who suffer from this they 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 really dislike um the the thought of, of putting themselves out there and, and, and trying to do things that make them feel uncomfortable they kind of stay really safe um and in dreaming is out of the question right like doing things that are risky or really hard for people suffering from learned helplessness uh it often comes with with other forms of mental illness, um, namely depression, right, is a big one. Um, and you just don't have the oomph inside to take that next step to to break the shackles um, that, that have been kind of burdening your sense of self. Um, and essentially what you can do about it, right, like, you know, I, I, I'd read my book, right? Um, but like, being honest, like, you have to kind of break it down. You can't just snap out of it, right? You need to face the trauma. You need to go through the process, whether it's therapy, whether it's in-depth, you know, deep conversations with the people that you love, right? Whether it's a personal journey through through journaling and, and kind of really thinking and unpacking the things that have happened to you, why those things happened to you, what you could do to con- to to prevent that from happening or reduce the likelihood of that happening again. Um, who was responsible for certain things happening to you and who wasn't responsible? Just kind of reframing things in your mind and re because you you really have to relearn 
how to perceive those things that happen to you, right? And and that takes some some work and effort, right? Um, and going through and, and my book kind of does that. It goes through this process. I don't go straight out to people and say, "Hey, be resilient." Racism sucks, right? Um, abuse sucks. Obstacles suck. Get over it. It starts out very grounded. We really work through the issues. We talk about like, here's a lot of things that have happened to me that really sucked. Here's a lot of things that I've been through. Here's a lot of times that I've faced racism. And, and here's times that I, that I faced racism and didn't cope with it well. And here's times that I faced major set, setbacks and didn't face it well. And here's things that I tweaked and did a little bit differently that really worked. And here's my thought process behind that, right? And and you just kind of grow that way and kind of just sequentially move through the process. Um, and and the book is really designed to to flow in that way, so mm. that you're, you're able to kind of go through the journey, see where I started and where I end, right? And kind of get what happens in between. And I think that's really the, there's no shortcut, right? I think that's really what you have to be able to do. Um, and you know, if you have to read the book three times or, or four times or five times, or put post-it notes of certain phrases and, and, mm -hmm. and sections that really mean a lot to you that resonate with you. Right. Or, and, and really write your own story, right? Like, you know, take that and then think about what's my story going to be here. Where am I at? And, mm -hmm. and, and let's write the ending, right? That's, what's really exciting is that you really do hold the pen in your own life. And once you write through and think through the really traumatic events that that are impacting you, right, that happened to you in your past, until you work through that, you, you can't really be released, right? And so once you get to that place of freedom, it, it's really exciting because you get, you hold the pen. Now you write the ending and you write what happens next. Yeah, that's amazing. I was wondering as parents, can we enable our children's, I mean, can we have well intentions and be kind and not abusive, but still create a person that can have this learned helplessness by doing everything for them? I mean, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Because I know you were tying it into your trauma, but there also could be well-meaning parents that could create a child like this. I was making up for myself too. Listen, that that's something <laughs> that I actually think about all, all the time. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So here's, here's the thing, right? Um, I do not want to, I do not want my child to have the same mentality per se that I do. Right. In the sense that I know that a lot of who I am and, and how I've gotten to where I am has come from a great deal of pain and trauma. Right. And some of that you really can't replicate. You're not going to be able to replicate the mental toughness that comes from literally suffering. Right. Yeah. Like suffering creates that no human hardens. should have to go through. Right. It, it hardens you like it, and yeah. it does you more resilient and i don't know that there's a way to shortcut to mm. to hear, like good point that comes with suffering yeah the way to and that's a but that is a big it, it's a really important question carissa because mm -hmm. we all want the best for our kids yes I, 
my daughter and my two sons to be able to overcome anything that happens to them. And at the same time, I don't want anything bad to happen to them. <laughs> I know. It's like <laughs> it's a dilemma. <laughs> right? And but yeah. you know, part of it, right, is that again, we have to focus the answer here to me is that again it comes down to the fundamentals, right? We think about as parents, just like I would tell you in any situation in life where we where we have an obstacle, we have an issue that we need to solve, we have to take inventory of the things that we can control, right? So one, we can't really control whether something really bad is going to happen to our child. We can do our best, right, to influence, right, so we can try to keep them safe. We can try to make sure that we're giving them good advice. You know, when when our kids are dating age or going out to parties and different things, we can try to make sure that there's, you know, that responsible people are driving, that there's no drinking happening underage, that people are being safe. Hey, come hang out at our house. Right. There's things that you can do to try to prevent bad things from happening. But there has to be kind of an acceptance that really you can't control that. Right. And some parents, though, Carissa, as you know, we'll try really hard to control everything yeah. and, right? and they're actually robbing their children of valuable life experience mm. um, and it will grow into resentment as they get older they'll start to resent you for being overbearing for not allowing them to grow and learn lessons for themselves and so you what you have to do is is, is find that balance of i'm going to trust you i'm but it's not just a, tr a blind trust, right? It's, I'm going to trust you because I'm, I trust the relationship that we have. And, and, I, and I trust that, that, I, that you understand, that you understand the conversations that we've had, that we're on the same page, right? I think ultimately it comes down to the relationship and the bond that you're able to form with your children, right? Because if they truly understand, hey, dad's saying this because... Not only does he care about me, but there's some logic there. Here's He thinks this, this, and that, right? Um, he doesn't want me to, you know, to be driving around past midnight, right? Because, you know, he got in a really bad car accident. And, you know, you know, drunk drivers are out really late mm -hmm. driving. And, you know, or sleeping. Good. They could not even be drunk or just falling asleep at the wheel. Asleep at the wheel, right? right. Like... You know, and so like it's an understanding and a respect factor in like any relationship that you have, right? And when you have teenagers, like you know, I don't have teenagers yet, right? Yeah, and me either. There's gonna, there's a struggle there. Like it's it's not always going to be easy. It's but it's normal. Like you want your children to be independent, to 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 fight you on things, to to show their independence. Those are healthy things, and so I think is. As a parent, you really got to pick your battles and and stay true to your to your compass, right? And have like your really firm items that you're never going to budge on, and have certain areas where you're willing to be flexible. But consistency, anybody will tell you in parenting is consistency is the real really the most important thing. Um, but you have to have some flexibility, right? You need to be firm on some things, but you got to be flexible on other things. And be there to help talk your children through the the big challenges and obstacles and setbacks that they face, and have a bond and a relationship with your children 
such that they will come to you. You want to be a safe person, not a person who's going to lecture them and jump down their throat and, mm-hmm. and attack them when they tell you that they've made mistakes, right? Because if you c- can intervene and help their thought process, right? And be a truly safe person that, hey, dad, I made a mistake. I'm in this situation. I feel really upset about it. I'm, I'm really worried. I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. And that you can be a safe person that they feel comfortable going to that can help you assist their thinking so that when something like that happens again, they are learning again. It's the learned, everything that we do in our reaction to trauma, our reaction to setbacks in situations, they're learned. And so number one, making sure that you in your own life are behaving in the way that you would hope that your children do is really important because your kids are watching all the time and Mm -hmm. they are taking notes and they are adopting your behaviors, whether you like it, know it, realize it, doesn't matter. It's happening. So number one is kind of like really being serious about what your values are, how you want to behave, how you want to deal with setbacks and issues, and and really walking the walk. And then number two is being that safe person, having that strong relationship with them such that they do want to emulate you right? Such that they respect you enough that they really do value how you are, how you operate, who you are as a person, and they want to be like you, right? And then the second piece of that is that they'll open up to you so that you can kind of, you can get into their head on what's going on. Because there's a lot of children these days, teenagers, right, that aren't speaking to their parents about the biggest issues that they're facing, either because they're too embarrassed, they don't think that their parent would understand, um they've tried before and the conversation didn't go well right and so those opportunities when your children share things with you it starts young right my four and a half year old will share things with me right when they do something bad or they stole a cookie or they've been eating whatever and it's important for me even now that she feels comfortable talking to me about stuff that if i ask her hey arden did you did you have some candy? Did you sneak up there and grab some candy? Right. That she feels comfortable saying, yeah, daddy, I did. And say, okay, well, you know, you're not, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And, you know, we can have a conversation about it. That's not, you know, predicated by anger or resentment or, you know, extreme disappointment. And that we can kind of talk through that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me about some of your other achievements or uh, businesses that you have. Do you have uh, other businesses or charities? Yeah. So um, so in connection with kind of promoting the the message of the book and 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 making sure that the mission of of the book of of black empowerment, right, empowering. Uh, black communities to really take ownership and control, right, of the situation. Again, it, it's this learned helplessness issue. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot of talk right now about racism and how to finally deal with this problem. And for decades and decades and decades, the so-called solution has always centered around asking white people for help, asking white people to stop doing things, to start doing things. And that, whether people realize it or not, 
is really, really, really bad for Black psychology, right? Because you are reinforcing this idea, right? Raise it. That's exactly like, what we're coming back to, the learned helplessness a little bit. Yeah, it, right? Yeah. Because you're teaching people, right? If the narrative all day long, Black Lives Matter, is that, hey, we're asking police to stop murdering people. We're, we're asking people to stop being racist. We're asking people to stop doing these things. Does that, is that really something that you can control as a person, as a, as a, as a victim of this behavior? No, it just, it feels very, it, it's, listen, do, should we ask people to stop being racist? Yes. Should we have campaigns where we, you know, try to stop violence uh, against un, unarmed black men and women in this country? Uh, yes, absolutely. We should continue to do, to, to do those things. Um, but we also have to recognize and re reflect on what the consequences will be and have been on a narrative that is nothing other than that, uh, right? And that is a situation- It's more empowering. I, I think you're coming from just like a powerful place. Like we are here, we are here, yeah. you know, and not, not that, yeah, you need other people to lift you up. Listen, if other people come and help me, like, for example, my story is littered with people randomly in certain points in my life, adding value, helping yeah. me. Away. I wasn't waiting for them. I wasn't sitting on my hands. Right. Like, yeah, it was something that was wanted, gladly accepted help. Right. Um, but you have to put yourself in a position where people want to help you get over the edge. What I've always tried to do is is do the ninety percent, and and do it so well, and do it with such vigor that you really you it it's going to be tough to turn me away, right? Like playing basketball while in law school, there was hundreds of schools who said we can't do this, right? We've never done this. There's a reason why people haven't done this before. It's because it's probably impossible, right? I got three and a half hours of sleep a night, right? It was practically impossible. Right, but, <laughs> practically, but not impossible. It wasn't impossible, right? Yeah. Because, and it took someone along the line believing that, okay, listen, I don't know if this is possible, right? Ultimately, I don't a know. A glimmer of hope, a glimmer of hope, yeah. But I'm not going to stand in your way, right? And that's essentially what Seton Hall ended up saying was that, like, listen, we're going to let you do this. And I hope it goes well. <laughs> right like i hope that you can do this and uh, but you are so passionate about this you planned you've thought a lot about it you seem very confident that you can do it and we're not gonna stay we're not gonna stand in your way right and and so i think that happens a lot of times in life where you really have to take control and ownership over what you can control racism sucks it's not going away tomorrow right it's 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 been alive and well for a very long time and it's going to continue to be around unfortunately for a while and i hope we all continue to work on it but in the meantime the black community cannot continue to wait and hope and rely on the world changing right to start life to start living to start succeeding to start doing all the things that they want to do to start dreaming, the time is now, right? To to really take inventory, like we've talked about a couple times, right? So far in this conversation, 
of what are the things I control, right? What are the opportunities that I can leverage, right? And the book really walks through that, right? How to think about certain situations, how to identify what you can do. And it starts with identity. That's one other thing that I really want to want to hone in on right now is is identity and it, it and it kind of works in in connection with one of the the core missions of the foundation is bias and racism right in many ways is somebody else not having a an accurate understanding um of of who you are right as a human being right they see you as a black man as a black woman as a white woman as a white man and whatever it is, they just, it doesn't jive with what you think you are. Maybe they think you're a bad student. Maybe mm-hmm. they think you're very smart. Maybe they think you only got the job because you're white. Maybe they think you only got the job because you're black, right? Whatever it is, right? You see a mom pushing a shoulder. You think, oh, stay, maybe, oh, stay at home mom. It's like, no, I'm a business owner and I'm worth six, you know, I'm worth yeah. seven things. Right? right. You never who people are you can't really judge right yeah but problem with bias is going to continue to persist mm-hmm. so as a person who is trying to navigate bias mm-hmm. and make sure it doesn't harm our lives and our future uh in our attainment of our goals we have to have a really clear sense of what that identity is yeah right? ourselves and just like project that yeah yes, yes. i love so, how malcolm gladwell talks about that too yes absolutely yeah. bias absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that the foundation is doing is we're, we're launching a platform called BX Talks, um, and it's going to do a couple things. One, it's going to allow Black thinkers, entrepreneurs, philosophers, uh, professors, authors, athletes, you know, to, to share their stories of resilience and share their stories of what they do, how they got there, right, and, and add value to the community, right? Um, and that's going to add value to them right in a way as well because it gives them a platform to do that that's amazing I I love that um sorry I have to cut the interview but it's been such a pleasure getting to know you and hearing about your book Black Resilience and your foundation and this amazing site that you're starting I'll put your website and how to buy your book in the show notes so thanks so much for being on the show today Krista, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I, I hope that the, the viewers and listeners uh, got something valuable out of the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to all the amazing listeners of the Zen Success Show. Because of you, we've reached over 101,000 average listeners a week, and we are thrilled with the response from our audience. It would really help if you could rate the show on iTunes and give us your feedback. If something really resonates with you about this episode, send my team an email at carissa at carissasims.com and I'll connect you with a guest or we can set up a free 15-minute reading. I look forward to hearing from you. That's it for today's episode of Zen Success. Head on over to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to shows. Zen Success is also available on the radio in select markets through amfm247.com. Subscribe to the show and share with friends. Be sure to head on over to zensuccessshow.com to help you on your Zen Success journey. 
and join us on the next episode. May you find your own Zen success in life.